Well, good morning, friends. Thanks for joining us. If you're online, terrific to have you with us. If you're at Bush Lake at West Tonka, if you're a guest today, hey, God's blessing all over you. We're launching a new series called James. I'm so excited about it because James is, I think, one of the favorite books of the generations and centuries of Christ followers because it's so practical. Um, in fact, it falls under the canopy or the genre of wisdom literature. And wisdom is that gift that God gives to anybody who wants it that helps us know who to be, what to do, where to go, what to say, how to say it. I think we could have an outpouring, an extra dose of wisdom in our lives and in our culture today. Amen? Yeah, we really could. And James is going to give it to us. In fact, that's the purpose of his book. He is not going to explain how you become a Christian You know, most of the gospels, most of the epistles speak about that, but he's speaking about how you live out your Christian life. And today we're gonna introduce the backdrop to it, but then as well get into the first few verses of James and the study. It's gonna take us all the way through the summer. James will be our mentor. And by the time I'm done introducing, you're gonna be glad that James will be our mentor this summer. So I just wanna encourage you to open up the book of James, read it through the course of the summer, be ready next week. We're gonna be in James chapter one for a few weeks and we're gonna launch today with a message title that I've called The Benefits of Trials. And I know right away you're going, really? Yes, the benefits of trials and troubles and suffering. Let's jump into it right away. James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now, this is amazing. He doesn't start his letter. When you write a letter or start a book, you start usually on the shallow end, get to the deep end. He just starts on the deep end and stays there all summer. It's so good. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because, that word, because... Because becomes really important. You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And so you got to go, who is this guy, James, that could take us into this given place in James 1.1 again? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this James who would say, consider it pure joy? Because... Have you ever, any time in your life, had one major trial, tribulation, suffering? Just raise your hand. Could I see it boldly there? We have it. It's visceral. Your first response to a trial is not joy. It's not being glad. It's being sad. It's being sorrowful because it's weighty to go through troubles. So, I mean, this is radical teaching we have from James. We need a mentor to help us get our head around how is this even feasible or possible. And he jumps into this. So who is this James? That's where I want to start. Who is this James? Because right away, you might get confused that it's um, a James that is the most prominent James in the New Testament that we know most about. James, who is the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, the two brothers, they're fishermen, they get called by Jesus, follow me. They do follow him. They become among the very first disciples of Jesus Christ. And these two brothers are given the nickname in scripture, the sons of thunder, because they're so impulsive. And it's not that James who writes the letter. In fact, James and John, you might remember, have one of the most pronounced scenes. It's in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, when they're all the disciples are walking down the road, Jesus is ahead, you know, and Jesus is doing mighty and great things. So we find that um, John and this James make their way up close to Jesus because you want to be around influential people and say, hey, Jesus, 
could we sit at your right hand and your left hand? And the other disciples are totally annoyed. And, and uh, Jesus looks at them, I think so calmly, and says, you don't even know the question you're asking. Are you willing to drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Do you want to be that up close and personal? I'm just telling you, this is not the James who wrote the book that we're going to study all summer. In fact, this James, the brother of John, is one of the first disciples to be martyred. Herod takes his life by sword and beheads him. And uh, he, he dies many years, 15, maybe 20 years before this letter is even written. So it's not that James. So who is this James who says a ser- he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's none other than James, the son of Mary and Joseph, the brother to Jesus himself. This amazing brother. He's got quite a story. And his story speaks to the whole understanding of the book of James altogether we find that he is not one of the believers. He does not believe that his brother, um, Jesus, is Lord or Christ. In fact, we, we read in John 7, 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. They rejected him. They scorned him. They made fun of him. And you go, wow, a brother of Jesus? And when Jesus walked the face of the earth, they weren't among his believers, including this James. And in some ways, it's really not all that surprising. Any of you have a brother or a sister? Just, can I see that too? Raise your hands. Good number of you. You know how it is. Because you think, why is it sometimes um, we, don't, we don't treat our brothers and sisters the same way with honor that people outside might treat them? We treat them, because we, there's pride maybe, there's jealousy along the way to say, you know, like what's so special about him? You know, what so, why give so much attention to that one because we're a little attention starved? But you, you have these issues. It's far more common than we would think. In fact, when you see a celebrity, and occasionally you'll see this, a celebrity who just, you know, rocks it, is just um, revered by everybody, held up high by everybody, and then they die, and somebody writes an expose about their life, puts it into a book, which gets made into a movie, so you can watch it on Netflix. And in that movie, they do all kinds of things. Like, they, they just you know, show the reality, the, the failings of the given person, the sin and the shortcomings of them. And, and you kind of take a step back and you're like, who would write that? Why would they do something like that? Who writes things that trashes their own siblings or their own kids or whatever the case might be? Well, you know the answer. It's family. Family does it. It's those on the inside. It's people who are close. It's a brother. It's a sister. It's a spouse that step into that. But can I just tell you, we're going to learn about James a little bit this morning because he's got such an amazing story. James didn't do this. He writes a book. He didn't follow Jesus. He ridiculed him while Jesus walked the face of the earth. He does not trash him. He does the opposite in this book. And you've got to go, like, what changed in his life? What happened to James that, that we would find this beautiful book that gets written? Well, The scripture tells us what happens to James. After Jesus dies, remember, he rises from the dead and he appears mostly to groups of people here and there. There is the exception of a few individuals that he speaks to. And James is one of them. We find it in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Paul says, he appeared to James and then to the other apostles. And I go, oh, to be a fly on the wall. What did Jesus say to him? We we aren't given the content of it, but I can imagine what it was. I'm sure Jesus shows up in his risen power. He said, James, hi, it's me, your brother. 
And then he would say something probably like this. I've come for you. Wow, it had to be a moment. My body is given for you. So believe in me and come and lead the church because Jesus gives birth to the church and James will become the first pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. It's an amazing story, and he does. He's so undone um, that it recalibrates his whole life concerning his relationship with his brother, and it says, James, a servant of God. That's how he introduces himself, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, elevating the word Lord and Christ, and specifically, if we could put a circle around that word, Lord, so common, just comes off our lips, but it's a very, very special word. In the New Testament, which by the way, the New Testament was written in Greek. It was the common language of the day of people, Greek-speaking people. Before Jesus was born, to show the significance of this word, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, were translated into Greek. It's known as the Septuagint. And this word, Lord, in the Greek is is, is um, Kyrios, Kyrios, that's the name. And both in James and in the Septuagint, you will find Lord um, translated from the Greek word Kyrios. And the word um, for the Jewish people of the time was in reference to the personal name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, and it's such a sacred name. It is so saturated with the concept of deity that Jewish people would not say the name out loud. They would not say Yahweh. They would not say Jehovah. They would not say Kyrios out loud. And then you find this incredible picture of the deity of the name of the Lord included right here. Not this Jew, not James, the brother of Jesus. He not only writes it, he says it, that this Jesus is Kyrios, Lord. He is the Christ. The one who did not believe, did not follow him all of his life, all of a sudden refers to him with this sacred name, this name of deity. He is, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he becomes the pastor of the Jerusalem church. I think, wow, when you talk about life change and transformation, how do you go from being a guy who doesn't follow the Lord and not too long later you are following the Lord and leading his local church? That's the power of what God can do in us when we make ourselves available. He uses us for his purposes, even when we've denied him, rejected him, we come to him and he just turns it all around. And James is the one who heads up the Council of Jerusalem as it's called in Acts 15 and it's a, a time of great division in the local church. I know that surprises you that the church would have a time of great division, but can I just tell you, it didn't take long. The, the Gentiles and the Jews, they had issues about how to live out your faith, and they were not in agreement, and it was this kind of deal, and James becomes the conflict manager. He is the chairman of that council with the likes of Paul, Peter, and John in the room. That tells you something about James. In fact, Paul comes back later and says that James is one of the pillars of the church, four pillars of the first church, Peter, Paul, John, and James. And James is going to be our mentor for the summer. I'm just telling you, I've chosen a really good mentor for you. So be in the mood, would you? Open yourself, be available to what he says because he is gonna bless your life. He may change your life with what we learn over the course of the summer. And by the way, just one more reference to James because unfortunately, um, he passes away in a tragic 
tragic death, and we have an account of it, not in the scripture, but from Josephus, the historian who walked a parallel life with James. And we're told that things were heating up in Jerusalem. A lot of persecution was breaking out, and hardship was there. And James got called by the spiritual leaders to come to the Temple Mount. So he makes his way there, I'm sure other disciples were there, and they say to him, there are too many people choosing to follow Jesus Christ as you call him. Can you tell them to stop and no longer follow him? To which James replied, anybody? No, he couldn't, he was undone. He knew who Jesus was. And, and I, I don't have the time to read the description from Josephus, but it's so beautiful. The testimony he gives about his brother that he once rejected and who he is, that he is the Christ. And he asks the Lord to forgive them of their sins in the whole deal. And they are so put off by him. They throw him over the temple wall and then they stone him to death. That's in 62, AD 62 that he dies. This is the James who writes the book and what an amazing book it is. And you can see who it's written to here, to the 12 tribes scattered. They're scattered because persecution broke out in Jerusalem. So these Jews are going everywhere. It's not just for the Jews. It's just written in a way that they will understand it, but as well, every Christ follower will, you will too, and you'll be moved by his story. He's just saying, follow Christ. That's the purpose. Stand firm in your faith. Don't give up. And therefore, he starts at the deep end of the pool through personal experience of hardship with these deep, deep, meaningful words. Let's go back to James 1, 2 through 4. And this is where we're going to park ourselves today. It says, Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Let me call out something interesting about James in the course of our study. There's only 108 verses in James. Just 108. If you gave a little effort, you could memorize this whole book by the end of the summer. I know you're, you're not... You're not looking at me like with earnest interest, and I want you to memorize part of it. Would you at least agree to read it? We're going to be in James 1 for the next few weeks, so this week, read James 1 10 times, 12 times. Just read it, read it, read it, and let it begin to saturate your mind. You will be blessed by this mentor. There's only 108 verses. Here's what's amazing, astonishing. There are 54 imperatives in the 108 verses. An imperative is a command. It's a sense of urgency about how to live your life because there's so much trial, so much tribulation. Pay attention. Don't give up on your faith. And he uses these imperatives. So for the rest of the time, I'm, I'm gonna dedicate my energy and attention to these few verses by asking you to make the most out of your trials, your sufferings, your, your, your troubles that, that come into life. And I'm gonna take four of the imperatives that are in these three verses. And the first one is to face it, that trials, trials are inevitable, they just are. And the second one is to consider it, and that is joy is possible. And you're going like, how can that be? We'll get to that. And then the third imperative in these verses is to know it because perseverance is doable. And the last one we'll just touch on briefly is to let it. Let it do its work. Let it mature you because maturity is beautiful. And we're gonna speak about that beauty briefly before we come to the table and conclude our service in communion. And so let's just jump into this first part of it. Face it, it says. Let's go back to the verse again. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you, there's the first imperative, face trials, face them of many kinds. 
And he's telling us something really important here. He's, he's not telling us um, if there are trials. He doesn't say, you know, consider it pure joy um, if you face trials of many kinds. He says when you face trials of many kinds. It's inevitable. We're going to go through these periods of trial. It means that anything um, can happen to anybody, anything can happen to anybody, including you. And there's a notion that we might have as Christ followers, well, God wouldn't let, he might let little bad things happen to me, but not big bad things happen to me. We live with that notion, or maybe that hope, or that expectation as preeminent in our own view of suffering and hardship. Uh, I, I, I want to ex- exemplify this in just a moment. A few weeks ago, Carrie and I were... Um, needing to replace, we, we needed to replace our driveway because it's the same driveway that has been there since 1995 when we built the house. So let me just say, you couldn't put any more lipstick on this driveway. It was just a disaster. So we had it replaced um, a, a few weeks ago and, uh, and it was great, it was beautiful to have it done. But they say, you know, when you put down a new asphalt driveway, one, you, you can't drive on it for 10 days. And then you're not to park on it at all for several more days. So I just parked my car in front of the driveway so nobody would touch it, it would all be good. This past week, I got a unhappy text from my wife. Doesn't happen often, most are quite happy. Have you ever received an unhappy? There's a difference in what it sounds like. It was an unhappy text. Did you do this? What did I do? What did I do? And there was a picture with the unhappy text, and it was a dumpster on our brand new driveway. And I said, no dear, I did not do that. I have no idea who did, she tracks it down, finds out that they dropped the dumpster off on the wrong driveway. And it made an impression and has left its mark on our brand new driveway. It was an unhappy text. And I was unhappy with her, actually. And I think about that picture and I go, isn't that our reality? Our life, we want it to be like a driveway, smooth, <laughs> recently covered. But can I tell you something about driveways? It doesn't take long. They get dented, there's impressions, and they ain't pretty. And that's part of trials and troubles and tribulations in life. And they can be amazingly hurtful. It's all gonna be taken care of, I want you to know that. The owner is still alive, everything's good. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're on it in a good way. So. So we, we jump into this beautiful picture of what kinds of trials do we go through, and I thought, ah, let me just take a few minutes and call them out, because sometimes you just say, hey, you have trials and sufferings, but what are they? Let, let me just put a few of them up. Face it, it's inevitable. Sometimes suffering and trials come because you lose things, and it's hard to lose things. You know who comes to my mind most right now are people fleeing from Ukraine. People even coming into our borders across, which I know creates a political hot, um, wire for everybody on this deal, but if you put yourself in the shoes of those, they've lost everything. And I go, man, what is it like to lose everything like that? Paul says in Philippians 3.8, for the sake of Jesus Christ, I have lost all things. And then he goes on to say, I consider them garbage to gain Christ. That things, when we lose them, sometimes they create trials and tribulations for us, but the reality is, they, they really are things. We are going to lose them. We're not taking any of them with us, and therefore we want to keep God as the priority. I think James would concur with this, and I think he would say, world, there is nothing of value that I need, 
and nothing that, of value that you can take from me. That's what James is saying. In other words, hold loosely the things of life. Don't give them more meaning than they deserve in life. Hold loosely to them because we do lose them and it guards our heart from more suffering. Or you might find that it's infirmities, which really speaks to the kind of suffering and trials that we have because of physical weakness or health concerns that might come to us. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, as you know, and he prayed three times, God, take this thorn away from me. We think it was a physical affirmity. It was troublesome for him to even do his life on some occasions between it, but God responds, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Like what? How is it when I'm going through such pain, my moment here is not one of joy, how can that be possible that in, in weakness there is a power that is given to us that elevates something good and that's the promise that is here for us, that you don't go through any kind of suffering that he himself hasn't endured himself, that he is with you in it. Or if I go from infirmities, you can also talk about reproaches, that when you stand up for Jesus, which is what James is gonna teach us, stand up for him. Even in the midst of the changing culture that we're living in today, we will be pressed in, we will feel persecution in new ways in our own given country. Stand up for Jesus, what James is saying. There will be people who will insult you. And a word is given to us in 1 Peter 4. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. I go, how is that possible? We'll get to that in a moment. But there's goodness to come, even in the reproach. And then there's probably the highest and the hardest has gotta be tribulations, those tragedies sometimes unspeakable, that come into life. Such grief, grief upon grief, loss upon loss, the deepest kind of loss. And oh, it just breaks the heart of the Lord himself. We're crushed by it. And Jesus says, in this world you will have troubles of many kinds, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There's, there's a positive to each of these infirmities, the backdrop to what James is speaking of, that help us in life. And so we, we have this, and I, I say it because I think we get a little bit confused because media reinforces so much. If you lose the things that make you happy in life, then you're, it feels like your life is, is over with. That if anything goes wrong with your health here, if anything goes wrong with your love here, if anything goes wrong with your money here, it starts to feel like life is just over with. We get undone by the reality of losses and suffering. I just read an article recently, and I want to think that it's really not true, but maybe it is. I don't know. It was doing a comparative analysis on our prevailing culture today and those of the past, saying those in the past embrace suffering, death, um, trials, and tribulations with greater ease than ours does. In fact, the article called Our Prevailing Culture, The Crybaby Culture. Is that true? I just, I don't like reading articles like this. So to take them personally, are we crybaby? It says that we complain that life is unfair more than any other generation before us. That we sue at the drop of a hat. Those things kind of are true. We're generally unhappy. I don't know if it's greater or less than those um, that have gone before us, but does it seep into our own Christian mindset that, yeah, maybe little bad things happen again, but not the big bad things? So I'm grateful for Christ followers, like a dear friend of Carrie's and mine who just passed away a little over a year ago, and she was amazing, amazing. And we heard her say, in response to people who said to her many times, she battled over a year before she lost that battle physically. Why, why did you get this? 
You're such a good person. You influence the world. Why would God allow you to be taken away? And she responded the same way every time. Why not me? Why not me? What sets me about as being different? Was it a test for her faith? Absolutely, it was a test for her faith. But I will tell you, like James, she was a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ all the way. There are examples that stir your heart and go, oh, God is alive. And you see it in people and all that they go through. So can I put this on the screen as just an elevated point? Anything that can happen to anybody can happen to me. Would you say it with me? Anything that can happen to anybody can happen to me. Stand firm. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up your faith. Stand firm. It'll come. So face it. Trials are inevitable. Uh, The second way to handle trials, according to James, is to consider it. That's the next imperative. That joy is possible, which kind of takes us back a little bit. And I think it's interesting when you read the passage, consider it pure joy. There's the imperative. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces, produces, it's an upward, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I think James here is not being a masochist. I don't think James is um, saying, hey, friends, enjoy your trials. You know, I, I call your friend. I'm in a place of trial and tribulation. Let's have a party. Do you want to come over? He doesn't say that at all. In fact, if you look closely at the passage, he doesn't say, consider it pure joy um, that you face trials. That's, he's not saying, consider the trial your joy. He's saying, consider it um, pure joy. So you have to ask, what is the it? If it's not the trial, what is the it that we are to consider pure joy? And I want to answer it with one word, perspective. It's perspective. That is, how you view the struggling troubles and hardship in your life will shape how you handle the hardship and the trial of your life. That if you look at the trouble as something that is going to give something to you that you right now you don't currently have. That, that suffering is gonna bring something to you because this word here, produces, is an upward. It's, it's producing something positive and that's not our inclination. But that's what we need is that new perspective. It will produce a perseverance. Something good will happen. And what is that something good? Well, there's probably several responses, but I think the reality is that the present trouble somehow prepares us for the promised life to come. So what we go through here prepares us for what is in the life still to come, and maybe still here, it's somehow gonna deliver some good for us. I think about that even um, in childbirth, which is probably a great example. Carrie had four kids. I was in the room for each of those children. We almost lost one of them. We had a code blue situation. I watched her go through those labor pains. They were intense, to say the least. And then the baby is born, and three minutes later, her whole disposition changes. Like joy. Tears of joy, go, how does that, how does your disposition change that fast? Because the present trial prepares us for the promise of life to come. And spiritually, it's the same. The present trial is preparing us for this life to come and so much more. I took a step back on this verse because I think it's the biggest struggle I have in just this, this text in my own life. And I think to myself, okay, Joel, do the business in your own soul. Can I encourage you to do this too? When you come across verses like this and you're called to consider it, which is, Uh, a powerful word in and of itself, but I took a step back and said, okay, 
in my suffering, in my life, from the time that I was a child, when my parents were divorced, and my early journey to even recent years, what could I say are good things that came out of it? I identified four things that without suffering would not have been treasured things as they are in my life today. And I think these four things are probably for you too. And top of the list on these four things for me is consider it, count it, it's a, it's a um, financial term, weigh it out. So I weighed it out. I think humility is a gift, it's a prize of suffering that you treasure. Humility in two different ways. A humility that says, I will not be conceited for the accomplishments that are made in my life through me because anything that I am and have has come from God. It's to give God the credit and not to be conceited, which is what Paul himself gives powerful testimony to when he says, because he was so gifted, he was brilliant, and he's gonna be given the task of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, and here we are all these thousands of years later because of the fruit of his faithfulness in those early years, and we find in 2 Corinthians 11, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, the Lord gave me those three, th- the, th- the thorns in the flesh that he asked three times to be removed. So he wouldn't be conceited because he knew his inclination was to take credit and be arrogant. Humility is a gift to be treasured so that you keep God um, as priority to give him the credit for your life and journey. But then on the other side of it is also this incredible call that we have from um, those places when we just need to depend, when things are bad in our life and we just, it puts us on our knees. Humility calls us to depend on him. So 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, cast all your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. But the verse that precedes it is powerful. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord with his mighty hand he'll lift you up in time, due time. Cast all your cares and anxieties of him because he cares for you. So you have this picture of humility working with you in a powerful way. Not just humility to be prized, but compassion to be prized. Compassion is that gift that helps you understand other people and their need and their brokenness. You know, six years ago, I was diagnosed with a medicinal um, depression. Um, Found out that I was diabetic and they couldn't get the medicines right. Put me in a funk for six months. We got it sorted out. All is going well. Managing it well today. Grateful. But for six months, I experienced darkness. I don't know how I preached during that time. I don't know how I showed up for work. Sometimes I didn't even want to get out of bed. But can I tell you, I've been doing ministry for 43 years. I've met with hundreds of people with depression. And I've always tried to be empathetic, but I've never truly understood. But now I do. Now I can be present in a different way. I find my words are less. I just try to be present. When you meet somebody who's gone through something you've gone through, it makes a difference. We become encouragers of them. Or there's this benefit that I prize as well, freedom that suffering really is having something taken away from your life that you felt you needed in your life. That's suffering. So if you've had something taken out of your life that didn't really matter, that's not suffering. You're just living without something that you could have or not have in your life. But when something is meaningful taken out of your life, then that's suffering. But then you wake up the next day and realize that you are alive that you can get on without those things. And all of a sudden, you're set free from the power of these realities on the face of the earth that actually hold us down. You're set free in the power of the Lord. And then the last one, just briefly, is faith. I mean, would you agree with me that your suffering has grown you up more than any other single force in your life? You probably would say yes. Would you say yes? Yes. Thanks. 
it was kind of pathetic, but I know you've suffered. And when you think about your suffering, you have grown in those given places. That's what he calls us to pay attention to, and it's so important. So here we have this new perspective, trials that get us to the long view of the life still to come. Um, the reality of a humility that makes me dependent on the Lord to give him credit, a compassion and a care for other people, a freedom from things that I think I need and I really don't, um, this beautiful prize of faith that grows. It just, it turbocharges faith along the way. Just briefly, the last one, or, or second to last one anyways, how do you make the most out of your trials is to know it, that perseverance is doable. I wanna take just a couple minutes on this one because it was kind of the highlight of my study as I stepped into this word perseverance. So consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance, what is that word perseverance? So I decided to do a little deep dive on that word. I did word study. And the Greek word is hupomeno. Hupomeno. Meno means to stand. Hupo means hyper. To hyperstand. So James is saying be a hyperstander. Oh, I've never thought of it that way. That when you think about the winds of life that come against you, you have to stand firm. And, you know, it's difficult. But sometimes there are hurricane force, wind, hurricane force winds that seek to knock you down. And you can hardly hold. I picture the weatherman in the middle of a hurricane standing on a lamppost just holding himself together, which I wouldn't suggest for anybody. On a, but to hyperstand means to stand firm in the middle. He's calling us to be hyperstanders. And you go, how can I do that? Well, you can't do that alone. You have to go to the ultimate hyperstander, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is what happens in Hebrews, take a look at it. It says in Hebrews, and let us run with perseverance, hupo meno, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he hupo meno, he hyper stood for us, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what a gift, Jesus Christ hyper stands for us. So he went to the cross for your sin and my sin. And when you believe on him, as James did, when you receive him, you stand for him. And he stands for you. And he gives you the strength to be a hyperstander as he calls us to. And when we do the hyperstanding business, you got the strength to get through it, you become an encourager and caregiver to others, and you find yourself in this beautiful place of being a witness to people who watch you go through your trials, your tribulations, your sufferings, and they go, wow, how are they doing that? Because within you is the hyperstander who is called Jesus the Christ. Isn't that a cool gift? And so you find yourself in a place, friends, are you in a, are you in a rough patch in your life? Because I know the inclination, I feel it myself, you wanna run out of it as fast as you can rather than to reconsider the gift that God might be bringing you into it. He wants to bring some assurance to you into it. So just know you can hyperstand in the name of Jesus Christ and good will be produced somehow, maybe in this life or the life still to come that makes it worthwhile. And that's why we come to this table to receive the bread. Jesus comes to us for God so loved the world. He gave his only son who's attracted to our brokenness, our trials and our tribulation. And he wants us to understand we drink the cup. We're reminded that he goes to the cross so that we could be set free from sin and death and have life 
today and for eternity. That's James chapter one, only three verses. Would you read James chapter one in next week? And if you memorize it, five stars for you somewhere. <laughs> Maybe in heaven, I don't know. I don't have a prize to give you. Just do it because it's good and right for your soul. But let's pray and let's come to this table. Oh Lord, wow. Thanks for being the hyperstander, the one who sees us, comes to us, lives among us, and then dies for us. Why would you do that? Because of love, and you know we needed that example of love. And then you go to the cross. How did you do that? Well, we needed to be set free, and Lord, you set us free. And Lord, I know there are people here today who are in a rough patch, and they need to be set free. So may they come to this table and believe and receive, as James did so long ago, after being away, rejecting, ridiculing him, and then to see him, oh Lord, what a gift. May we all come to this table and say, I am a servant of God and of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, amen.